Well, good morning and welcome. And uh, I do want to say just if you are not in a life group, you are missing out. We would love to have you sign up for one of our life groups. There's a sign-up table out in the lobby on your way out. Again, you could talk to anybody who's going to be at that table. They're going to tell you their connection with Jesus and each other has deepened as a result of their time there. So don't miss that opportunity. Today we launch into a new sermon series called Relationship Status. Now, it took me a real short, brief web search to figure out and become fully convinced that the leading cause of angst and anxiety in our country might be what to put in your relationship status box on social media, right? Now, I'm old. My relationship status hasn't changed for a while. For 23 years, it has simply said married. Now, the adjective you want to put in front of that probably changes weekly, if not daily. Like, my wife would give you lots of different adjectives you could put in front of marriage. But I had no clue about all the options or the symbols that you can use for, to define your relationship status. There are like emojis and all kinds of icons that you can select and put in there. And so I want to share just a few of them with you today. We won't go too far down this rabbit hole. I'll let you do that on your own time. So the first ones were pretty easy, you know, single, engaged, widowed, divorced, married. Okay, all those, those kind of make sense. All right. It's complicated. Aren't all relationships complicated? I don't know what to say to that. I'm like, welcome to reality. I don't know. Open? Different sermon, different sermon, different series. <laughs> not going to go there. We're just going to leave that one alone, right? Because I don't want to know. And then there was civil union. I'm like, well, my wife and I are civil with each other, and we live in a union, so maybe, we're, maybe I should change my status. I don't know. So there you go. The list goes on. You can dig into that if you want to. Um, and while this information is helpful... As we seek to love our neighbors and meet them with unassuming authenticity, where they are, love them, engage with them, I think this whole relationship status misses something. I think there's something much deeper about our relationship status and much wider than just who we are simply in romantic relationships with. And if you were to think about all of the different types of relationships you're in, what is the status you would give to those? What status would you give to your friendships? To your employees or employers? Yes, your romantic partners, or what about Jesus? What status would you apply to each one of those? Would you say, hey, the status of this relationship is excellent? Or maybe you'd say, the status of friendships in my life is I've given up. I've tried, put myself out there, been hurt too many times, I'm done. Or maybe you'd choose to fill in a blank and say, none of the above, but this is the blank I'd fill in. My guess is, no matter what you'd put in that relationship status bar, none of us would look at our relationships and be like, perfect. Right? We all have opportunity to grow to get better. And that's where our value of unending development comes from. We want to be better in our relationship with Jesus, in our relationship with each other. And I believe that Jesus actually calls us to invest deeply in our relationships with each other. You see, we were created in the image of a God who loves us, but the image of a God who exists in relationship with himself. 
whether it's Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all three in the Trinity, one person, three distinct units, that's a whole different sermon series. We'll get to that later. There's a lot to unpack there. But God exists in relationship with God's self, and we bear that image as we walk through life with our, in our relationships. No matter how broken or how healthy those are, we're bearing that image of God, and it's easier. I'm not going to stand up here and lie to you and be like, sometimes it's easier to just avoid relationships. But that's not who we were designed to be. That's not the way God put us together and knit us together. And so in order to help us understand what Jesus desires for us in our relationships, over the next four weeks, we're going to take a look at four distinct relationships. This morning, we'll look at friends. Next week, marriage. The week after that, co-workers. And the week after that, our relationship with Jesus. And so how do we take each of those relationships to the next level? How do we improve in each one of those types of relationships? But in order to get you thinking about friendships, I want you to think back to who was your childhood best friend? And why were they your best friend? Now, some of us who are a little younger in the room have a little easier time thinking back that far, but all of us can think about who was your best friend. Mine was a guy by the name of Andy. And I started thinking as I was putting this sermon together about Andy and when Andy and I met. And I thought we met in middle school. And then I found this picture, which I think I'm like five or six at that point. And that is Andy and I on the same soccer team. So as we grew up together, we went to the same church together. Andy's dad was our family doctor. We played football together. We, in high school, we cheered together. That's the next picture coming on the screen. I, you guys can chuckle at that. So there you go. So yeah, so... We're the only two guys in the picture if you're looking, but that's where we are. So, and when you are a male cheerleader in the mid-90s, you are automatically close friends because everybody else thinks you're really weird or doesn't want to talk to you, right? That's just the reality of our friendship. But as you think about your childhood friend, my guess is you have a couple of those stories that you go back to and you're like, oh yeah, this is the dumbest thing we ever did. So Andy and I, We decided one day his mom left. We were at his house. They had a two-story home, and it was surrounded by trees, so you couldn't really see the road from the roof. I know that because we figured out that if we walked out his parents' bedroom window, we were on the roof of the second-story home. And we decided that the best thing to do from a second-story home roof is play home run derby with tennis balls and an aluminum baseball bat. So we went, kids, this is not like go home and try this. This is do not try this at home labeled. So we took a laundry basket with, I don't know, probably 30 or so tennis balls in there. And we decided to just slow pitch them to each other and see how far we could hit that tennis ball. I can tell you this, I never saw a single tennis ball land. We did hear tires screeching. And Andy's mom came home just before the basket was empty and caught us in mid-swing as we were cracking that tennis ball out. And I felt like Andy's mom was my mom at that point, And I got in major, major trouble. But the other story I think about with Andy is maybe you had these friends and again, you just are like, you're going to have fun. You know, whatever you do, you're going to have fun. And so we went to the BMX bike track to ride. And in the 90s, it was uncool to wear helmets. So none of the cool kids wore helmets. And whether I was a cool kid or not, I was not going to label myself as uncool by putting a bike helmet on. So I was filming my X Games 
entry video so they would let me in before the X Games. And we came down the hill and I went over the first ramp. And in my mind, I was in perfect form. And it, I was, oh man, I was, this was going to be great. I was going to land. We were going to race around the track. And I did well until my front tire hit. And if you know something, you know that's already the wrong tire to land first. And so that front tire hit, and I went over the handlebars, and I slid uphill on this part of my body on dirt. And so Andy was ahead of me, and so he came back around, and he was like, I'm like, dude, my face hurts. And he's like, oh, it's just a little scratch. You'll be fine. We can keep riding. And so we rode for the next couple hours, and we rode two, hour, two miles home, and I got home, and my mom was gone, and I looked in the mirror, and I used to have hair, and it started about right here. But from that point to here was one giant strawberry. There was no flesh left on the side of my face. That's my best friend. <laughs> and I, I, we, had, we had so much fun making those memories. And yeah, we got in some trouble together, but the truth of that friendship is we kept ourselves out of a lot of trouble. We were there to be like, hey, that's a bad decision. Not like home run derby on the roof bad. That's a bad, bad decision. Don't do that. And we graduated. We went our different ways in college. We both had our struggles in college. We ended up being in each other's wedding. First service, I said married to each other. That's a weird thing. We, we, were, <laughs> we were in each other's weddings. And, uh, and even when I moved back to Indiana... 16 years after graduating high school, I got a chance to spend a year in a Bible study studying God's word and talking about what it meant to be a young dad with Andy. And we reconnected on those levels. You see, what I think we don't realize about our friendship is how transformational friendships can be. Our friends influence how we see the world, other people, and Jesus. And I know this was true for Jonathan and David, who we're going to look at today. And Jonathan and David's friendship, if you don't know the story, is really kind of an absolute miracle that they even became friends. Because the story of the Old Testament is King Saul is the first king of Israel, and his firstborn oldest son is Jonathan. Now, we know how monarchies work, right? The firstborn oldest son is going to be the next king. And Jonathan did everything right to be the next king. He was a warrior. He went out in battle. He won against Israel's enemies. He won numerous battles. He had a solid faith in God. He trusted in God to do some miraculous things on the battlefield. I was not familiar with that story. You should read 1 Samuel 14 sometime this week. It's an amazing story of what Jonathan does. But Jonathan's dad did not follow God. And as a, as a result, God loses favor with Jonathan's dad and sends the prophet Samuel to pick the next king. Now, if you're Samuel, you probably assume, okay, I'm going to the palace. I'm going to anoint Jonathan as the next king of Israel. And God says, mm, no, I need you to go to that little rural remote village, Bethlehem. And I need you to pick the runt of the family that you're going to find there to be the next king. He's so much the runt that his dad doesn't even bring him out to the prophet. Doesn't even bother to call him in from the fields. And we know him as King David. 
And through a series of what seems like random but ultimately ordained events, David ends up face to face with a nine-foot giant who has been mocking Israel and mocking Israel's God. And with a slingshot, slays that giant, takes his sword, cuts the head off, and becomes Israel's hero. And everyone throughout Israel is singing David's praises. They admire David. Jonathan is in admiration of David. Everyone that is except for King Saul. And so we see Jonathan and David meet for the first time face to face in 1 Samuel 18. It says this starting in verse 1. After David had finished talking with Saul, he met Jonathan, the king's son. They were, there was an immediate bond between them for Jonathan loved David. From that day on, Saul kept David with him and wouldn't let him return home. And Jonathan made a solemn pact with David because he loved him as he loved himself. Jonathan sealed the pact by taking off his robe, giving it to David together with his tunic, sword, bow, and belt. Now this text doesn't give us any like background as to what forms this bond between them, but it seems like it's this deep, immediate bond that forms between these two men. And it's a bond that ultimately, as we read the words of Scripture throughout the several, next several chapters, in our over-sexualized over culture, some of it makes us uncomfortable because we've lost the deep, rich meaning and understanding of what it means to be a true friend. And we live in a culture that doesn't understand the impact that that can make. The other thing I want to make sure we don't miss is the significance of Jonathan giving all of these things to David. As Jonathan gives them to David, the text is not completely clear if Jonathan understands exactly what he's doing, but he's for sure foreshadowing the fact that he is giving his throne by giving his robe and his weapons to David. He is foreshadowing the idea that David is going to be king and not Jonathan. Now, if you fast forward a little while, Jonathan's admiration and love for David continue to grow, while Saul's jealousy and hatred of David continue to grow. You can imagine the tension that Jonathan feels in this relationship. His dad is trying to kill David, and Jonathan's trying to be loyal to both. I want to be a good son. I want to love my dad. I want to be obedient and do all the things that God tells me I'm supposed to do for my dad. But this is my best friend. And my dad's trying to kill him. He actually has to go to his dad and be like, Dad, you're wrong. You can't kill David. David has always done what's best for Israel. David has always done what's best for you. And Saul relents and says, okay, I'm not, I won't kill him. And we keep reading the story and he says he won't kill him, but then he throws a spear at him at dinner. I, maybe it was just to see if it bounce off. I don't know, but like he's like out to end David's life. And so David gets invited to dinner again. And by this time, he's probably like, you know, I, I went to one and ducked the spear. I'm not going to take it, not going to take a risk at dinner number two. So he tells Jonathan, listen, I need you to tell your dad that I had a family emergency. And I went home to be with my family. And then you tell me, if your dad responds well to that, I'll come back in. If he doesn't respond well to that, I probably need to flee. And so they create, they create this plan. That's what they're going to do. And they renew their pact with each other in this moment. 
And they say to each other in that moment, not only will we be faithful friends and love each other faithfully as long as we live, but we will carry that on to our families. And in making that pact, David is looking at Jonathan and saying, listen, no matter how many times your dad tries to kill me, I will not respond in kind. I will not harm your father. So Jonathan goes to dinner. Saul says, hey, Jonathan, where's, where's David? And he's like, oh, he has a family emergency. I told him he could go. Saul loses his mind, right? He gets so angry at David, or it's Jonathan for allowing David to go. He picks up the spear this time and throws it at his own son. Jonathan ducks, dodges the spear. And the next day he goes out and he warns David, listen, you need to run. You're right. My dad wants nothing more than you dead. And you need to get out of here. And as they part ways in that moment, we have this place that scripture tells us they both wept. And if you go home and read this story found in 1 Samuel, you'll see, and maybe you'll begin to ask, Jonathan's doing all the work here. Is David as committed to this as Jonathan is? And it's in this moment that scripture tells us they both wept and David wept harder significance of this friendship and the realization that they may never see each other again has sunk into both of them. David runs, he takes his warriors, he takes his friends and they run and they hide in caves away from Saul as he's pursuing them to look for them. And the amazing thing about David's story is as Saul's pursuing him, David's hiding in caves, but he's still going out and defeating the Israelites' enemies. He's still leading his army into battle. And finally, one day, Jonathan sneaks away. And I want to read this story to you because I think it's significant. In 1 Samuel 23, verse 16, it says this, Jonathan went to find David and encouraged him to stay strong in his faith in God. Don't be afraid, Jonathan reassured My father will never find you. You are going to be the king of Israel, and I will be next to you. As my father Saul was well aware, so the two of them renewed their solemn pact before the Lord. Then Jonathan returned home while David stayed at Horish. In this final meeting of these two men, Jonathan needs to find David to remind David of two things. Who he is, And what God has called him to do. Jonathan goes out and he says, David, listen, your faith is in God. That's who you are. You're God's child. And don't forget that God who loved you, who gave you that identity, has a purpose for you. And he wants you to live that out. This is how our friendships are transformational. As we remind each other in the middle of our friendships who God says we are. And what God has called us to do. Eventually, Jonathan is killed in battle. Saul takes his own life to spare being killed in battle. And David gets the news. And David writes a psalm of lament that we read in in 2 Samuel chapter 1. I'm going to start in the middle of that psalm, song in verse 23. How beloved and gracious were Saul and Jonathan. They were together in life and in death. They were swifter than eagles, stronger than lions. 
O women of Israel, weep for Saul, for he dressed you in luxurious scarlet clothing and garments decorated with gold. Oh, how the mighty heroes have fallen in battle. Listen to David's words about a king who sought his life. He could still give honor back to Saul for what he'd done for God's people, for the dad he'd been to his friend Jonathan. But the depth of his emotion comes out when he talks about who Jonathan is. He says, Jonathan lies dead on the hills. How I weep for you, my brother Jonathan. Oh, how much I loved you. And your love for me was deep, deeper than the love of women. Jonathan's friendship had spared David's life, had given sacrificially, and had been a constant source of encouragement for David. And this Hebrew word used there to describe their love is used only one other place in the entire Old Testament. And it's Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 7. And there it's used to describe the love that God has for his people. It's a promise-keeping, unchangeable love that God gives to everyone he calls his own. And David says, that's the way I felt about you, Jonathan. I want to pause for a minute and just ask, Who's been like Jonathan in your life? And maybe the harder question, whose life have you been like Jonathan in? You see, because next level friends are sacrificial, not selfish. Next level friends are sacrificial, not selfish. Jonathan gave up his rights to the throne, his rights as a firstborn, and in a lot of ways he sacrificed his relationship with his father. Scripture doesn't really tell us what happened to Jonathan's relationship with Saul, but I can imagine if my dad threw a spear at me at a dinner party, we're going to have a different relationship afterwards. I don't know, I think that changes things. The cost for David comes later in life. You see, Jonathan's gone, David's now king, and he's sitting on his throne. And it's in that moment that David remembers his commitment, not just to Jonathan, but to Jonathan's family. And he calls a servant in and he asks this, is anyone in Saul's family still alive? Anyone to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? See, David in his own integrity, in his own sacrificial way to his friend Jonathan, remembers the promise he made. And he didn't make it just to Jonathan. He made it to his whole family. The servant says, yes, Jonathan had a son. That son was actually carried by his nurse as the raiding parties came in after the announcement of Jonathan's death. And on her way out carrying his son, he was dropped and he's been crippled for his entire life. His name's Mephibosheth. And he lives in a house outside the village. David says, I want him brought to the palace. Now you can imagine, if you're Mephibosheth, a crippled adult who the king has never even acknowledged your existence before and you get called to the palace, you're like, this is like called the principal's office. Like, oh no, what is going to happen? Mephibosheth is terrified. And David says, listen, you have nothing to be scared of. I brought you here because of my love for your dad. 
And what I want you to know is you will eat at my table in the palace for the rest of your life. And to the servant who let him know about Mephibosheth, he says, hey, listen, you can live in that house. You can farm that ground. And you and your family can have everything you harvest from that ground because Mephibosheth won't have any needs because he'll be here with me because of my friendship with his dad. I'm not going to stand up here and tell you friendships are easy. They're not. They take work. They take effort. It's hard to develop good friends, let alone next level friends. But I think that's exactly the point. Next level friends are sacrificial, not selfish. Paul picks up on this theme in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. He says, And further, submit to one another out of reverence, for Christ. Not only sacrifice, but we submit. We lay down my will for the benefit of my friends. If I may, I want to ask you a couple questions about your friends. Who would you call your friends? Get that name or that person, that picture in your mind. Who is your friend? How well do you know that person? Below the surface, how well do you know that person? Do you know their fears in life? Do you know their temptations? Do you know how their marriage is going? Do you know the struggles they have with their kids or the fears they have in raising their kids? Do you know enough to know how their relationship with Jesus is going? Could they answer those questions about us? More often than not, when I start thinking about friendships, I have to ask myself a tough question. And it's tough because we know ourselves, right? We get inside of our own heads. So when you see a friend, when you see this person coming, is your first response to ask them how their life is going? Are you like, hey, how are things going? How's everything going with you? And you sit and listen? Really listen, not like think in your head, right? Can we be honest for a minute? Sometimes we ask and then we immediately think in our heads like, when are they going to ask me how my life's going? Or I wish they would stop talking so I could tell them about how my life's going, right? Am I the only bad friend in the room who sometimes has those thoughts? Okay, right? Like we do this, we're human beings. But is our go-to to ask or do we sit and wait for them to ask? I think it's a healthy bar barometer of how we're doing at being a, a next level friend. Maybe if you're someone who in yourself talk to yourself, you, you get really honest about stuff. Maybe you just ask, do you view your friends as people to serve or people who are there to serve you? Next level friends see ourselves as there to serve. Now, last week, not Thursday three days ago, but Thursday like 10 days ago, we got a text from our friends in St. Louis, Mike and Heather, and they said, hey, 
are you guys doing anything Memorial Day weekend? And we're like, no, we're not. And they're like, could we come up and go to church with you on Sunday and then stay and just be there on Monday? And I was like, yeah, that'd be great. Now, I don't know if you have friends like this. We have been blessed with one couple like this that like, it doesn't matter when they come, how late they stay, or when they leave, the end of the conversation never actually happens, right? Like, we just keep talking and keep talking and keep talking. We've been friends for a long time, as you can see by the picture behind me. Yeah, that's my 15-year-old who used to have a high-pitched voice in that picture, uh, and now he's not, and that's their kids. And their son was old enough at the restaurant last week to be like, hey, Dad, can I have the keys so we can just go home? And we were, and Corey and I were like, wait, they can just leave? And so all the kids left, and we sat for two more hours at this restaurant talking. And then we decided we probably should give up the table. And so we talked the whole way home. We talked when we got home. We talked until a ridiculous hour of the night, way past I should have been in bed. When you have friends like this, you've done dumb things together. That's maybe my theme with my friends, I do dumb things. Mike asked me once to do a Tough mutter with him. Uh, this is not a smile. That is a grimace of pure pain that I had at the end of that race. Never again. No, thank you. Did one. I'm done. And it was only a 5K, not the big one. It was just the short one. But these are friends who have walked through the ups and downs of life with us. They are friends who were there when I left ministry. They were friends who walked with Corey and I through infertility. They're the friends you call at 11.30 at night when you're brushing your teeth and you find a large lump in your neck. And you say, hey, can you come sit with my 10-month-old because we're going to the hospital. They're the friends who walked through cancer with us. They're the friends who have walked through the trials of parenting. And we've gotten to walk through stuff with them too that it's not fair for me to share. But the one thing we can, I can tell you, we walked through a church plant closure with them. And all of the self-doubt and the questions that come, are we the reason the plant failed? And the scars that come as a result of that tragic event. You see, the beauty of friendship is that we get the opportunity to sacrificially serve each other. And when you have friends like that, you understand God's design and call for us to take our friendships to the next level. You see, it's friends like that who in the middle of those pits and those hard times can walk into your life and say, hey, listen, don't forget who God says you are. Don't forget how God designed you. Don't forget the purpose God put on your life and our responsibility. They're friends who can look at us and say, Ephesians 2.10, we are God's masterpiece. He's created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. That's what next level friends do. Church, I think people around us are looking for this kind of friendship. I think it's hard to find in this post-COVID era that we live in. 
when everything's real surface. What if the best thing we could do for the gospel is figure out how to take all of our friendships to the next level? So that someone who doesn't know who Jesus is can experience the love of Jesus through the way we love them and care for them. Friendships can be transformational when they're sacrificial and not selfish. And we do all of this because this is exactly what Jesus did for us. He gave up his life. He sacrificed everything so we could be in a relationship with him. He didn't simply wait for us to come and say, hey, Jesus, can we be friends? He came and made that relationship possible when he stepped out of heaven and he hung on a cross and his blood was poured out to pay for our sins. And in that moment, he invites us to come and experience next-level friendship with him. Maybe as we think about our friendships, we need to stop asking the question, how do I get more friends? And start asking the question, how do I be a better friend? And as we wrap up this morning and we prepare to come and celebrate communion, we come and we remember the sacrifice that Jesus made when his body was broken and his blood was spilt so he could be our friend. And we celebrate the joy and the love that that has poured out in our lives. I pray that it serves as a reminder of our call to go and be that kind of friend to somebody else.